So excited to be talking uh, to my next guest now, a man who's written some fascinating books, The Consuming Instinct, What Juicy Burgers, Ferraris, Pornography and Gift Giving Reveal About Human Nature. I hope I got that right. Uh, and one called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. He is a professor, evolutionary bi- behavioural scientist, author and a fan of his wife's cooking. I've seen it on uh, Twitter. He's a leading public intellectual who often writes and speaks about idea pathogens that are destroying logic, science, reason, and common sense. He has a fascinating life story to boot, and he joins me now live from his adopted home of Canada. Professor Gad Saad, good morning. How are you doing? Great to be with you. Well, it's it's great to have you on. It's uh, terrific because you're uh, a man who has studied uh, with... Um, a lot of PC insight, human behavior and human choices. And uh, I've, got, I've come to know a lot about human nature as a result. The, the book I would imagine you get asked about most is The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Kill Common Sense. Um, where did the, uh, the origin of that book lie? Right. So, uh, you know, I always tell people that I faced two great wars in my life. The first great war was going through the Lebanese Civil War. We are Lebanese Jews who had to regrettably leave Lebanon when the Civil War broke out in the mid-1970s. The second great war that I faced is in academia, where I saw the war that was being waged on science, reason, logic, common sense, human decency. And so really the book is an amalgamation of the, the, the trajectory that I've taken in seeing these idea pathogens, as you correctly pointed out, these, these parasitic ideas, all of which were spawned on university campuses. And so I thought that, you know, given the amount of time I have spent within the university ecosystem, maybe I should write a book telling the world what goes on in academia, but then ending on an optimistic note by providing people what I call a mind vaccine. In the same way that we can take a COVID vaccine, well, you can take a ma- mind vaccine to inoculate you against parasitic nonsense. Um, I've seen you interviewed uh, many times. You talk about leaving Lebanon at the age of 12 and, and the horror uh, that you witnessed in that particular war. Your love of the truth, which you also talk about, is that spurred by the fact that you witnessed firsthand a civil war, which are violent and incredibly irrational? Do you think that's yes. a, is that a fair uh, thing I, I to say? Yeah, it is. Uh, I left, by the way, just to forgive me for correcting you, at the age no, of right. 11, not okay. 20, but, but, uh, but uh, definitely the religious zeal that I saw around me, including within my own family. So I tell the story of how, you know, when I was five or six years old and, you know, my dad would take me to, to synagogue in Beirut and I would ask, you know, why are we standing up now? Why are we sitting down now? Yep. And the general answer was, shut up, don't ask questions. And that didn't appeal to me. Now, what the Civil War did do for me in terms of what I subsequently wrote about in the book is that it demonstrated to me how horrifying it is to organize a society along tribal lines, right? Everything in Lebanon is viewed through the prism of which religious group you belong to. So to now see 40, 50 years later, progressives in the West seeking to emulate the Lebanese experience by having all of these, you know, identity political machinations is really disheartening to me. What makes the West great is that your individual dignity supersedes the tribe that you belong to. That's what I love about the West. And I hate to see that we're trying to emulate that from which I escaped. 
if you look at the arc of human history, it has been uh, um, the struggle, certainly in the West, to escape tribalism. We and then we, you know, then we had nationalism, and we organised ourselves around national communities. And uh, there seemed to be a great flourishing of humanity. And as you point out, um, universities are now pushing out ideas that are undermining all of that. What is it about the university environment? Do you think that has made those pathogens? incubate there and scary is still escape right so uh, before i answer that question just so that your your listeners can get a sense of what i mean by an idea pathogen so postmodernism would be the granddaddy of all idea pathogens there are no objective truths everything is shackled by you know subjective reality uh, so that would be an idea pathogen. Social constructivism is another idea pathogen, which basically says everything is a social construction. Even sex differences between men and women are due to a social construction. They're due to the patriarchy. Uh, so why did they start off in the university setting? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, as I often joke, but I'm actually being serious, it takes intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest ideas, <laughs> especially, so especially when they are fully decoupled from the consequences of their nonsense, right? So I could sit in a humanities department pontificating about what, the, what do we mean by male and female uh, if I'm fully decoupled from it. But guess what? A urologist and a gynecologist, they know exactly what male and female is. And this is, by the way, why these idea pathogens have been more difficult to penetrate some disciplines more so than others. So, for example, I'm housed in the business school there is less of this nonsense in the business school. There is less of this nonsense in engineering because we are coupled to reality, Tony, right? I can't build a mathematical model of the economy or of consumer choice using postmodern mathematics. No such thing exists. I can't build a bridge using postmodernist physics. And so some disciplines, because they are so decoupled from reality, can pontificate all sorts of nonsense under the you know the austere ivory tower and uh, and nobody punishes you for it right as a matter of fact you get promoted to full professor so i think that's why the university ecosystem is both a wonderful place and a very parasitic place you also get the problem that you make tenure and can't be sacked um so it, it's unlike the outside world there's very few places where where you have that kind of job uh security um we if you see this kind of postmodern thinking or wokery is is a great way of putting it as it's kind of more commonly known it's turning up more and more in medicine and we would have thought that there were bulwarks in the medical profession against this kind of parasitic thinking as you call it uh professor gadsad um it how do how is it countered well i listen i've I recently had, I think it was maybe two or three months ago, a very uh, spicy exchange with a a physician of color, as if your skin color matters. So she's a physician of color. She's an anesthesiologist of color who thought that it was completely beyond the pale for me to talk about, you know, biological sex. This is an anesthesiologist. Wow. So, I mean, imagine the extent to which your mind must have become utter mush to not um, to not be able to openly state what is male or female doesn't the doses the, the dosage of your uh, anesthesia that you're going to administer depend on what what the weight of the patient is what the sex of the patient is but apparently i couldn't talk to her about these issues because she went to medical school and i didn't that shows you the kind of imbecility that we're facing it's it's one thing for it to stay in academia and then and then it jumps the fence so to speak. How 
how is it rolled out? How does it become orthodoxy? That's something I really struggle with because you are a champion of common sense. You're a champion of facts and logic, as most people are, I would have thought. But the idea that you have to entertain some of this, uh, these woke nostrums or orthodoxies, um, to me is baffling because we are, aren't we a, a rational species? Well, I think it, it, so take, for example, our prime minister. He is a walking manifestation of every parasitic idea that I describe in the book. Justin Trudeau, so, you know, yeah. We, Justin Trudeau, right? So now, so exactly to your point, yes, these parasitic ideas start off in the rarefied world of, you know, some humanities department at, you know, University of New South Wales or Monash University. Yeah. But eventually, it, eventually it escapes, just like the COVID virus escaped, the stupidity escapes, and it becomes our prime minister. It becomes the New <laughs> yeah. Zealand prime yeah. minister. Yeah. It becomes your HR department. So th this is why, by the way, Tony, when I would first warn people about this nonsense, well before most people were aware of it, the answer that I would get back is stop whining. This is never going to get out of the university ecosystem. And I said, you wait and see. They're coming for physics. They're coming for chemistry. Yeah. And they're coming for medicine and so on. And I hate to say it, but I was proven to be true. You've seen the consequences of, let's say, your pushback. Um, you were talking about giving a, I think it was at Berkeley, uh, the University of Berkeley in California, and, and um, there was a, there was an atmosphere in the room. You were there with your wife and, oh, yeah. and children. So th th it's one thing to deal in abstract ideas, and and you know you can have spirited debate, and everyone leaves it there because it's conducted with with amity or comedy or whatever the word is, uh, you know. But there's, but you witnessed. Um, I guess, the real-world uh, consequences of pushing back. Yeah, well, ju ju again, forgive me for correcting you. It's not Berkeley. It was University of Southern California, oh, okay. USC. USC, yeah. Uh, but, but you're exactly right that what, what made it so uh, powerful for me, I mean, you know, I faced hostile crowd in the past, but the fact that my wife and children were there was actually really important for me because it was an incredible learning experience for them. Now, my, my children, one is 11, one is 14. The 11-year-old was, you know, you know, is a bit younger. But the 14-year-old, who is herself a honey badger, was so angered, she came up to me and said, Daddy, can you, can you just let me and go, go insult them or talk to them? Or, <laughs> yeah. Because she was so irate. You know, I was very professorial, very calm. And if you saw the kind of badgering I was receiving in the Q&A period, by the way, they had promised me, USC, that they would eventually release both my lecture and the Q&A period. But guess what, Tony? The, apparently, they weren't able to release the Q&A stuff because probably they realized that it would make their people look like utter cretins. And so I only received the, the, the lecture, but without all of the badgering. It, it's interesting, and that's um, how I guess they preserve their reputation. I'm, I'm, I, I want to ask the immigrant in you, uh, Professor Gadsad, um, Im immigrating from the Middle East to uh, to Canada. Why we in the West seem to uh, attribute such a virtue to self to relentless self criticism? Why we really, why we really believe we think it's a good thing that um, being good is is never good enough. If you are not good, you are imperfect. No, I don't see that sort of thing being indulged in in other um, parts of the world. But we have really taken that on. What does it appeal to us? What does it appeal right, to I in actually, us? 
Yeah, I actually talk about that uh, as a form of orgiastic, you know, civilizational self-flagellation, right? Typically, if you go to see a therapist because, you know, you're very uh, self-loathing, if the ther- you know, if the therapist is worth any salt, they typically will talk you down from feeling bad yeah. about yourself. But, yeah. but to your point, if I am a ultra progressive woke person, I only gain more points if I insist how terribly, you know, bad we are. Now, I think that comes, frankly, Tony, from the fact that the Western people who are born here have never sampled from the buffet of wider societies that exist, right? The West is an anomaly. It's a small bleep in history. Yeah. Uh, human history is replete with everything but what we have in the West, right? It's it's tyranny, it's dictatorial, it's autocratic. This is why some of the most vociferous defenders of Western traditions and Western values are precisely the immigrants who sampled the other societies and said, let me warn you guys, don't take it for granted. So what I would love for a lot of these super woke people with the progressive lisps is to go live in the Middle East for a week while wearing uh, I love transgenderism and I love Jewish people. Get back to me and then we can talk about how woke you are. Um, well, we, well, we know they wouldn't do that, even, and even if they did, they would, wouldn't they, um, thanks to their mind viruses, as, as you call it, find some way of rationalising um, the reaction of, of people in those cultures? Yeah, exactly. Here's what they would say. The reason why those people in the Middle East are exhibiting such hate towards us is because of our colonial past, right? right? It's like when, when Noam Chomsky argued that the reason why the Khmer Rouge engaged in the killing fields of killing two million of their own people, it was a delayed reaction to the American bombing of Vietnam. Right. So even the, even the killing by the Khmer Rouge of their own people was due to the evil Americans. So orgiastic self-loathing is not a healthy way to happiness, which, by the way, is the topic of my forthcoming book. How do you uh, like that segue? Oh, that is brilliant. Let's talk about that because uh, you, that book being The Sad Truth, um, which is uh, very about happiness. Uh, of The Sad Truth About Happiness. Um, th- is that a, a, a distillation or a culmination of previous works? Um, have, you, have you rolled in uh, your research uh, from your university into this book? Or can you give us a, a thumbnail sure. of it? I mean, there is a bit of that, but largely what it is, is a, because I would receive often Tony emails from people saying, how is it that you are constantly mired in all this negative culture war stuff, and yet you always seem to be jovial, you always have a twinkle in your eyes, you're always joking, you use sarcasm. What's your secret to happiness, professor? And I received this so often, that request, that that spurred the idea of, hey, why don't I write a book that is part my life story, you know, what, what is the secret to my happiness, and part ancient wisdoms coupled with modern science. So I will combine some story from Epictetus or Aristotle or Seneca or Marcus Aurelius with some of the latest neuroscience and positive psychology research, behavioral science, combined with my personal history, put it together in a cocktail, and hopefully you've got a prescription to how to be happy. Um, it served you well, obviously. What sort of feedback have you got about that particular book? 
Uh, well, you know, so I've only started recently, you know, doing sort of the media tour to to promote the book. The book is not yet, it's, a, it's available for pre-order now. What I love about it, to be honest with you, in terms of the feedback, is that it's so easy to excite people about such a universal topic, right? I mean, if you think about the number one thing that philosophers have written, irrespective of which culture they come from, is they've tried to unlock the mystery of how to live the good life, how yep. to be happy, how to how to wake up every day with an existential glee. So, you know, when, when I wrote The Parasitic Mind and I'm talking about The Parasitic Mind, even though the book might end on an optimistic note, there is a lot of negativity, right? I'm criticizing things. I'm putting down things. I'm showing all of these nefarious effects of these parasitic ideas. Whereas my current book is nothing but beautiful, happy, positive stuff. And so for me, it's come as a welcome change in terms of the tenor of what I'm talking about. That would be a relief, especially when it comes to publicizing a, a book like that. Um, you draw on your own experience. How much would you say happiness comes from uh, a wife and children in your own experience? Oh, my goodness. Big time. So just to, to break it down for you, about 50% of our happiness is inscribed in our genes. Right. So some of us are born with a sunny disposition. Some of us are not. But but that's still good news in that there's still 50% up for grabs, right, that 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 is determined by the type of decisions that we make. And none are as important, Tony, as the choice of spouse that you make and the choice of profession that you, you choose. Because, you know, if I wake up in the morning and the person next to me is someone that I like, and yep. if I then go to work and I'm happy there, and then I come home at night and I return to that bed with the person that I like, yeah. well, I seem to have cracked, you know, the code for happiness. So that, that, uh, having that, that is it, true. That's a, I can tell you that's 100% true. Exactly. And so for me to have the solace of a happy home life, I would not have been able to do what I do, Tony, were I not happy in this, you know, in the sanctity of, of my of my home. So I'll give you a quick example, if I may. Last year, I gave this big talk at uh, organized by Hillsdale College, which is a college in the United States, very much of an anti-war college. There's tons and tons of people, really high profile people. And, uh, you know, it was a really great talk. At the end of my talk, as I walked off the podium, my daughter runs up to me, gives me a big hug and whispers in my ear, I, I love you, daddy. I'm so proud of you. Well, that feedback from my daughter was more important than had I won the Nobel Prize. That's how much it matters to me that my teenage daughter looks at me and says, wow, you are a cool dad. So having children who love you, having a, a spouse who respects you and who supports you, is everything in life. The rest are details. You can go into a bookshop and there are a million how-to-be-happy books or self-help books. Do, do you think, though, um, we receive enough cultural messaging about the importance, as you said, of partnering well and choosing a job that, um, that gives us satisfaction? I think the problem with most self-help books is that they are not necessarily grounded in uh, in the epistemic humility of science, right? Okay. So let me just break down what I mean by epistemic yeah. humility. Epistemic humility is the idea that I'm very well modulated about what I know and what I don't know. So a lot of self-help books offer you promissory things that are utter nonsense, right? How to make love to the same woman 20,000 times and give her an <laughs> orgasm every time. Well, guess what? Okay. That's bullshit. And I know that that's not true. How to reverse aging and be 18 years old when you're 104. Well, that's not going to, but, but yep. what it does there 
is it plays on my Darwinian-based insecurities. It, it gives me a pill which says, please take it, and I promise you, you will be just as vera as when you were 20. I don't do that, right? I tell you, I'm very humble about what I'm promising you. I'm telling you, I can't give you the definitive prescription of happiness, but what I can do is tell you that if you choose wisely and if you adopt these mindsets, it's certainly going to increase the probability of you being happy. So I think that's what we typically don't have within that self-help market. Uh, Gad Saad is my guest, professor, evolutionary behavioral scientist, author, and uh, uh, public intellectual. Um, you mentioned humility, and, uh, and this one of the, the rants I get on occasionally is how that has been, let's say, degraded as a public virtue. Can you talk about that? Yeah, look, uh, everybody on Twitter is a Nobel Prize winner, right? Everybody knows more than you on yeah. everything, yeah. right? Whereas, whereas when, when you ask me about evolutionary psychology or about psychology of decision-making or about parasitic ideas, I am going to walk with all of the confidence and swagger of someone who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. But there is a million things that you could ask me about. Hey, what, what do you think about the legalization of marijuana? Do you think that's a good thing? And my answer is going to be, Tony, that's a great question. Unfortunately, it's above my pay grade. I don't know enough about this to offer an intelligent uh, opinion. So because I am very well modulated, that's precisely why I have never gotten into trouble in the public arena, because I never step outside that which I'm sure about, right? Whereas many public intellectuals, you ask them about diabetes, they, they know more than anybody else. You ask them about uh, anything, they know, right? Because they start overestimating what they know. But if you are epistemologically humble, actually people respect you for that because that's how they trust you. Look, I can walk into a class with undergraduates who are 20 years old and they ask me a question. So somebody asks me a question. I go, my goodness, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Why don't you email me so I could look it up? Guess what that does, Tony? That makes everybody in that classroom say, I can trust this professor because if he had the humility in front of everyone to not try to wing it as a know-it-all, then I know that he's not going to lie to me. So it's really important to have that humility. Uh, you're right. It's a, it's a great human trait. I want to talk to the, uh, the evolutionary behavioral scientist, Gad Saad, because one sure. of the other books you talked, uh, you, uh, you've written with the incredible title about hamburgers and pornography, um, <laughs> explored consumer choices. This is an area you have worked on outside of academia, isn't it, Gad? Well, I mean, I certainly have uh, done some consulting work, but actually what you've just described is the crux of my scientific career. So what I did, Tony, is I created, I founded a new discipline, which I coined evolutionary consumption, which seeks to apply evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study our consuming, consuming instincts. So example, because that might sound like a mouthful, maybe the people might not know what I mean. So for example, uh, how does the menstrual cycle affect women's consumer choices? Well, we know that women will go through uh, different hormonal profiles depending on where they are in their menstrual cycle. So I've done research that looks at, you know, how likely are they to beautify themselves as a function of where they are in their menstrual cycle. And perhaps not surprisingly, if you think about it, when they are in the ovulatory phase of their menstrual cycle, when they are ovulating, 
that's when they engage in the most vigorous sexual signaling, just yeah. like countless other sexually reproducing animals. Here's another study that I did. I looked at how conspicuous consumption showing off affects men's, men's testosterone levels. So if you put young men in a Porsche, what happens to their testosterone levels? It shoots up. We actually did a study using salivary assays to measure the shifting levels of testosterone in men. On the other hand, if you are the guy who is showing off in front of me, guess what happens to my testosterone levels, Tony? It goes down, right? Because you are beating me with your higher status. So what I basically do is I incorporate physiology, biology, psychology, and studying the fundamentals of what makes us the consumers that we are. And so that's been very much the entirety of my academic career. How does that come when, uh, how does that work when it comes to you buying a present for your wife, for your anniversary? <laughs> well, that's a great question. You know what? The, the most important signal in it when you're giving a, a gift to a romantic partner, I mean, yes, you can argue that it should be expensive in, in the sense of, let's say, an engagement ring, that the traditional norm is it should be one fourth of your yearly salary. But I think the most important thing that certainly when a man is giving a gift to a woman is that it be well thought out, right? So yes. that's. It, I've actually listened to the fact that you love this color in this particular pattern with this particular font size, and therefore I got you the card that only costs $4. But the fact that I signaled that I heard every single one of those you know, minute preferences that you, you communicated to me, yeah. that ultimately is the, is the value of, of that gift. And so I, I try to do that, and apparently I've been successful because I've been with my wife for 23 years. That would be number one in my book on happiness, what you just said. 100%. 100%. You mentioned, and this kind of ties a couple of your, your books together, I guess, and I imagine you'd be able to speak about this with some authority. Things like status, hormones, um, uh, mating preferences, they all have, our, we, we think we're terribly unique, and in many ways we are as a species, but all those things I just mentioned have analogues in the natural world, don't they? Exactly right. As a matter of fact, I like that you use the word analog. In biology, in evolutionary biology, we have two uh, phenomena. One is called homology. A homologous trait between two species is a trait that demonstrates that we've evolved from a same common ancestor. An analogous trait is when the same trait has evolved independently in two species. So, for example, birds and bats have evolved the capacity to fly, even though that they have evolved that, that, that behavioral ability independently of one another. So it, your point is exactly well taken because most social scientists regrettably think that humans somehow exists outside of the biological realm. They yep. think that what makes us human is we transcend our biology. So a lot of the animus that I have faced throughout my academic career, Tony, has come from, frankly, imbecilic social scientists who basically say, of course, evolution applies to the mosquito, to the cassowary bird, to use an Australian example. Nice. It applies to the dog, but surely it can't apply to consumers, Professor Saad. Surely you're not saying that consumers are animals. And I answer, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. We don't leave our biology at the door when we put on our consumer hats. And so at first I used to receive a tremendous amount of animus, but by, you know, science is an autocorrective process. Yep. If you calmly and calmly and assiduously collect the evidence, eventually people 
come around to your side. So, and and many- they do. Uh, Professor, I've got to wind you up there because we're out of time. Thank you for a magnificent chat and best of luck in the future taking on, as you call, the imbeciles. A wonderful chat, Professor Gadsard. Thank you so much. Cheers.